economics is the study of human choice in the world we live. Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. By investigating faith in economics, we can learn how they lead to human flourishing. This is the Faith in Economics podcast, a presentation of the Gortney Institute at Ottawa University. Welcome to our show today. I'm Nate Johnson, the producer and graduate assistant for the Gortney Institute. Today on our show, we have Dr. Russ McCullough, the founder of the Gortney Institute and Wayne Angel Chair of Economics. We also have Dr. Justin Clark, the Menard Family Professor of Philosophy and Ethics. And finally, Dr. Peter Jacobson, the Gortney Professor of Economic Education and Research. Well, we have some unprecedented things going on in our economy right now in terms of, I would call it kind of big government between the fiscal spending that's on the table with the Biden administration and then the increase in money supply by our current central bank, both of which claim that they got everything under control and this is what uh, life looks like now and, and they, they're there to be the social safety net and and uh, fix all of our woes. So there's a school of thought in economics called the Austrian school, which is a little bit of, oh, redheaded stepchild for being, maybe that's not PC anymore to say something like that, but they've been kind of outsiders, I should say, from mainstream economics. And I think Peter needs to give a little stab here for starters at just uh, what is what is the business cycle? The business cycle, let me, I guess, before we throw it to you, the ups and downs of the economy is changes in real GDP. It's not the stock market. A lot of times people get confused thinking that uh, the Dow Jones Industrial Average or NASDAQ or S&P 500. So we're not talking about that type of swings. The stock market is part of the economy, but it's actually kind of a small part. And there can be some relationships between the overall economy. But we're talking about gross domestic product, the dollar value of all final goods and services produced within our nation's boundaries over the course of a year. And that is the ups and downs we're talking about here on when we go into boom times or recession. That's the thing that we're tracking. And so the Austrians have an interesting look at what causes these ups and downs, what, what should policy look like. It ultimately gets to a prescription of what policy should look like to maybe make the ride more smooth and have less ups and get away from a manic depressive type of society where we have big ups and big downs. And so, uh, Peter, what do the Austrians have to say about this? Yeah, so I, I'll start with a disclaimer that oftentimes Austrian business cycle theory is thought of as some people trying to describe every business cycle with this theory, and that's not true. There's plenty of reasons that business cycles could happen. Business cycles just meaning recessions, basically. You know, one recession that happened recently or the most recently was the recession that happened around COVID. Now, I'm not sure if that was actually three quarters of negative growth or not, which is what typically counts as a recession. But the, the point is that, you know, we did have an economic contraction. And the economic contraction was for two reasons. One of them was COVID. One of them was the policy response. And so we could call that like some sort of real shock. That's real business cycle theory. And I think like, you know, so Austrian business cycle theory does not say that there can't be like a meteor hits the earth and that causes a recession. Like this is obviously true. But Austrian business cycle theory is another type of business cycle theory that posits that business cycles are caused or can be caused by increases in the money supply. And the logic just goes a little something like this. 
when there's lo- a lot of printing of money, which there has been over the past few uh, months, and we talked about this in a recent podcast, actually the past year or so, a ton of new money has been printed. I think one fourth of the money in circulation currently is new money within the past like year and a half. When that money gets printed, it goes to banks, basically. There's a roundabout process, but it makes its way into bank vaults. And so when there's a big increase in the supply of money in banks, well, that means banks have a lot more money to lend out. And in order to convince people to take on new projects, that is to borrow money from the bank, they have to do something. They have to induce them to borrow more by lowering the price, which is called the interest rate. And so banks say, hey, we've got a lot more money to lend out now. So we're willing to lend it out to you at a much lower interest rate. It used to be 2%, now it's 1%. So all those projects that you didn't think were profitable at 2%, well, now you only have to pay back 1%. And what that does is it convinces people to take out longer term projects because the interest rate is basically the price of time. The longer a project is, the more years it takes you, the more time you're gonna be paying back that interest. And so a higher interest rate is going to make longer projects less profitable. A lower interest rate is going to make longer projects more profitable because you have to pay back a lower amount over time. And so when all this new money gets put in by the Fed, the Federal Reserve, which prints the money, these businesses start taking out longer term project loans. You know, it previously wasn't profitable to do a 30 year housing development, but now it is because you only have to pay back 1% instead of 2%. And over 30 years, 1% versus 2% makes a huge difference. Here's the problem is that that drives investments and, you know, these long-term projects, basically, you know, businesses demand lots of factors of production. We are, we're going to build a house. So we need wood, we need bricks, we need concrete, we need things like that. And so, you know, that demand starts driving up the price, but at the same time, consumers actually haven't started saving any more money at all. In fact, if the interest rate is lower, people are going to put less money into banks, right? Uh, because they're getting less money when you they put their money in a savings account. They're going to spend more often, in other words. And so consumers are going to, instead of save more, they're going to spend more. So consumers use different capital goods when they buy things. If you go out and buy a TV, well, you've got to pull it off the shelf. That deteriorates the shelf a little bit. It deteriorates the machines in the store that had to bring the TV out on the forklift. You know, all those capital goods that are close to the consumer uh, are deteriorated more. And so the demand for close to consumer capital goods, these are sometimes called late stage capital goods, increases as well. And so you have, excuse me, have demand for late stage capital goods and early stage capital goods, things like concrete, you know, mining operations, things like that. The problem is when you have increased demand on both of the sides, the price of those inputs starts to go up, like the price of wood. This might start to sound familiar, right? Kind of right. like what's happening right now. The problem is these long-term projects made their decision-making based on some projection of what input prices were. In fact, we can even kind of get a guess of what that projection was because there's a way to figure out what inflation expectations are 20 and 30 years in advance. There's ways to back it out for bond prices. We don't have to get too far into that. But the point is that, you know, about a month ago, the market was expecting over 10 years there to be about 4% inflation. That's creeped its way up to like 4.5% or something like that. And so, in other words, the market was expecting lower inflation than now we're expecting. Businesses underprojected what the prices are going to be. That means some of these projects, they expected concrete to only cost, you know, I don't know how much concrete costs, $10 a pound. I'm making things up. Yeah. But now it costs like $11 a pound. And that's the new projection. The problem is, as the demand continues to increase from both consumers and investors and these input prices rise, eventually it's not going to be worthwhile for these long term investment projects to continue. It's not going to be profitable anymore and they're going to go bust 
And a lot of them that are long-term projects are going to go bust at the same time because those were the projects that weren't profitable until the interest rate. And so the interest rate, usually, if it weren't for the government coming in, reflects the fact that people are saving more for long-term investments. But when you have an increase in the supply of money, it might seem like that's what's going on. But really, all it reflects is that the government has increased the supply of money and there's no additional savings going on. In fact, there's more consumption. So there's not enough resources lying around for the increased consumption and increased investment. And so that's a long-winded explanation. Austrian business cycle theory is kind of complicated. But the idea is that when you increase the supply of money, it increases the desire of consumers to have inputs and investors to have inputs, and there's not enough to go around. Yeah, so, so part of it is that what you described with wood prices going up. So what, what was profitable holding constant in time period zero when I chose to initiate the long-term contract was that those would stay constant yep. because of the lower interest rate, but now that's being chewed up with potential resource price increases yeah. and, and changes. I'd also like to add something that I've certainly was failed to, and I can't remember the exact name of the bias, but it's like ownership bias. Maybe you can help me out where if it's something you own or you started, it's your idea, you're less likely to let that go the as the endowment effect. Thank you. So that bias, I think, kicks in here too, where you've got a real estate developer like I used to be. You started the project, you said you were going to do a certain amount of things, and you're a little reluctant to say, oh, maybe we should pause or put this idea aside because of other things going on. Um, so I think that can be a part of this problem that ultimately gets created at that when these prices go up, as maybe you all are starting to feel right now, you're getting poor. When prices are higher and your income stays the same, you can't go buy that new house when that real estate developer finally finishes it. They thought there would be consumers waiting to buy it at the end, yep. but they're not there. And so now that unit sits vacant, the real estate developer goes bust. The other person can't find a job because the real estate developer had to lay off people. And that is this timing problem. I think the Austrian business cycle really focuses in certainly on the initial impetus of, of government doing something that distorts real behavior. Yeah. And then you've got this timing issue of, of money going into places maybe it shouldn't have been. Yeah. If consumers are planning on taking on or buying long-term projects, that means they're going to save today. If they're saving today, they're not competing for it inputs as, as much as they would be otherwise. And so saving today allows investors to buy inputs at you know, lower prices than consumption today does. And so you, know, you, you might even argue back, well, but you know, people are conservative. And so these businesses make projections and like maybe they do assume some rate of inflation. But the point is, there is some input price increase out there that would cause your project to not work anymore. Right. Justin? Isn't it also the case, given the endowment bias, that when the input prices change and a project is maybe less profitable now, given that the interest rates are so low, that encourages firms to say, well, I can actually just take out another loan, mm -hmm. which actually adds more gunpowder and just extends the wick a little longer. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I'd and, say that's true. And I think that's again one that hits hits home for me that we we did that too because what 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 you're doing is you, oh we just need a little bit more money because of these prices you let's say we were expecting to earn a 10% rate of return but now oh yeah prices went up it's only going to be a 6% rate of return when in reality maybe once all the dust settles 
it's going to be a negative return uh, yeah. because you don't have these consumers to actually fill your apartments or whatever at the end of the day. Yeah. And eventually, you know, you might say, well, that's just keep taking out loans until the input prices fall. Then, you know, there's no problem. But the, the issue is that the Federal Reserve can influence the real interest rate in a, like a short period of time. But over a long period of time, the Federal Reserve can really only influence what's called the nominal interest rate. In other words, you know, you you can't fool someone to, into accepting like really low interest for a loan for for like a decade. You know, the banks will realize, hey, we're going to lose money on this if we keep doing this. And eventually the interest rate will move whether the Federal Reserve wants it to or not. Yeah. And when that interest rate starts to rise, again, more projects go bust because maybe part of the project was I need to take out a future loan for the second step of the project. Now the interest rate's higher and it's like, if we take out this loan, we're going out of business. Yeah, I still think Milton Friedman was correct that inflation is always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon. Yeah. It, it really, the data shows that what, what Peter was talking about with the real interest rate is that the, the nominal rate, the rate that the bank tells you, let's say 7%, is driven ultimately through a combination of the real rate and inflation, the combination of the two, because the investor is looking to get a real rate of return on their money. And so if inflation is running 4% and the interest rate is 7%, the real rate of return in terms of purchasing power is only 3%, the difference between the two. Yeah. And so, uh, w- Justin, you got something? You continue because I do it slightly different. Yeah. So to, to sort of like clarify, to finish out here, what normally happens in not a business when we're not having like increases in the money supply, because oftentimes this gets confusing when you add more people, but you can think of it like this. If you're on an island and you can choose between fishing today or making a net, if you make a net, you're going to catch less fish today. You're going to, you know, basically get less consumption today. But in the future, you're going to have a permanently larger amount of fish if you have the net, right? And so you have to sacrifice today to have wealth built tomorrow. That's how it works. And in the banking system, it's the same way. If a bunch of consumers are willing to save today, that they're willing to put money away today for longer term projects, well, that means that these longer term projects are going to because the interest rate gets lowered when people save more, because there's more loanable funds available, uh, that lowers the price and long-term projects start to happen. So the market actually coordinates time, the time preference of you know savers and the, and the preferences of investors with the, the price called the interest rate. And so the cool thing about the market is when a bunch of people save, that signals to invest investors that long-term projects are now profitable. Mm-hmm. The problem is when you have an artificial increase in savings because the Federal Reserve just put a bunch of printed dollars into savings, that first off discourages savers from saving because the interest rates lower, they get less for saving, and so they consume more and that eats up natural inputs. And investors start doing longer term projects because they have a lower interest rate and that eats up inputs as well. And so you don't actually have enough inputs for both of those people to continue the behaviors and that's what causes the bust. And so that would be like on the islands, if you said, hey, I'm going to fish for both of us today while you go and make us a net. And then both people decide that, you know, one person just decides to eat all the fish. The other person decides to, you know, fish themselves and not make the net also. You know, you, you've got a sort of a, a miscoordinated problem. You have to save in order to have long-term projects work out. You can't just print money. That doesn't, that doesn't increase the amount of resources. And so that's the ultimate problem. All right. Just to be clear, it's the savers who have invested their money who will, since they have that savings, be able to purchase the goods that the long-term projects will eventually produce. That's right. Yes. 
All right. Well, this looks like a good spot for a break. And when we come back, we'll tie a little bit more of this Austrian business cycle into this recent financial crisis. I think that'll help clarify things and also take a little faith angle. We'll be back in just a bit. By 2030, the Gordney Institute will be known for its alumni, supporters, and participants who incorporate economic understanding with their faith in their careers, vocations, communities, and personal lives. The Institute will be nationally recognized source for knowledge and contributions to students' experience. Society's understanding of private and public solutions to poverty and overlap of markets, governance, and faith. Young audiences will look to the Institute for challenging and engaging education on faith and economics. The Gordon Institute at Ottawa University is the best place in the Midwest for students interested in freedom and justice and its impact on human flourishing, faith and economics in action. We have uh, college credit now available for high school students where you'll learn some microeconomics and get some college credit at the same time. These credits are transferable to any university that you go, but we hope that you'll consider Ottawa University as a great place to go for your college experience. If you or someone you know is looking for a college like that, contact Peter or Justin or Russ today. Please subscribe on your favorite podcast app. If you use iTunes, please consider giving us a five-star review. It helps other people find us. We'd like to do a mailbag episode, so please send your questions to info at gortneyinstitute.org. All right, we're back. So the Austrians claim that the government, more specifically, they, they lean on um, money, the money change in the money supply. But I, I think it kind of can be also other government distortions of fiscal policy, whether spending programs or something else, which, which as we're seeing in today's world is intimately tied because the large deficits we're running are being funded by the Federal Reserve buying those. We just did a recent podcast on that, kind of the mechanism of how the government gets their hands on this money. Well, they're, they're selling IOUs, they're selling government bonds, and the Fed is the one purchasing those. I also started thinking, we, we didn't talk about it then, but what would happen if the Fed didn't buy those bonds? I, I, I suspect the rest of the world would start to question a little bit on whether this is a great idea by the US and interest rates would probably creep up is my, what I suspect if it wasn't the Fed buying these $4 trillion worth of bonds or whatever whatever it's been. So that was something that entered my mind. If we If we actually let the market drive those prices, I bet the government would have to cough up more interest. And so that's another thing that I've never heard discussed that I was thinking about that interest rates are probably lower than what they really would be in the market because of the way these uh, bonds are being purchased by the Fed and the money gets into the system and off we go. So those, those are kind of intimately tied into this business cycle stuff. And I wanted to bring up uh, faith arguments related to this. And so uh, just a couple quick passages here. We have Proverbs 21.5. Uh, the plans of the diligent lead surely to abundance, but everyone who is hasty comes only to poverty. So are we being a little hasty, uh, running big deficits and spending and trying to change things too quickly? Uh, Luke 14.28. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost? whether he has enough to complete it. And again, uh, it sounds like the Austrian argument is that the government is messing up those calculations for us um, because it's uh, too difficult to figure out what's gonna be happening with resource prices when uh, we have uh, inflate or have money supply driving price changes. 
and it makes it difficult for us to count the costs. So um, I wanted to lead off with that. Uh, other uh, arguments here on that or, or support or otherwise? And Justin, you had a question? Uh, a point and then a question. So it reminds me of, um, so Alan Greenspan, he had an essay that he wrote in the 60s when he was actually an advocate of uh, sound monetary policy. <laughs> and he made this analogy about uh, with a fuse box. And he said, um, having artificially low interest rates is like putting a penny in the fuse box. And uh, what a fuse does, you know, in a fuse box, if the current gets too high, the fuse blows, right? And that, um, that means that you have to go replace a fuse. Um, but if you put a penny in the fuse box, um, then your, your current won't, uh, your current will never uh, fail for just that thing, right? But what will happen is since the fuse doesn't blow, the entire system will blow. <laughs> um, and so when you have uh, a floating interest rate that's um, you know tied in, Greenspan's was advocating for the gold standard here, um, really? Yeah, I um, went that far back then. Yeah, uh, you know, then you have an interest rate that will rise and fall and will doom some projects. It will make some projects unprofitable. But if you have the interest rate artificially low, he thinks that posed a kind of systemic risk. Um, and so, uh, my question is, if what if the Austrian business cycle theory is correct, um, how does that relate to? what's going on right now? Where are we in this business cycle? I, you know, for the average uneducated Joe Schmo like me, who has a house payment and kids, how long before we're homeless and eating the zoo animals? <laughs> <laughs> well, on the bright side, if you have a house payment, you have successfully hedged a little bit against uh, a possible inflation. Um, you know, it, it's, it's tricky. Uh, it, I think one of the issues that Austrian business cycle theory has had is it's been overpredicted. I think that that has uh, relates to what I was talking about earlier, that it's not the, the Austrian business cycle theory isn't the only explanation for uh, business cycles. And like every other economic law, Austrian business cycle theory is dependent on everything else held constant, right? Ceteris paribus. Uh, if something isn't held constant, like if for, you know, we could imagine if there's a technological improvement and the cost of a bunch of projects comes down at the same time. Like energy or something. Yeah, yeah. Basically like, free energy yeah, because of some innovation. Yeah, nuclear fusion comes out and we have free energy all of a sudden. Uh, that's going to probably stave off any business cycle that was going to show up. Now, obviously, that's an extreme example. But the point is um, that it's not necessarily the case that every time the Fed increases the supply of money that there is going to be a downturn in GDP for two quarters or more. That's not necessarily what's going to happen because everything else might not be held constant. Or maybe uh, businesses are very intelligent and they decide, you know, this time I know the interest rates are artificially low and so I'm not going to borrow and take that risk. Mm -hmm. That's also a possibility, yeah. certainly. So there's a few different, but I, I would say that things, to answer your question, Justin, is I'm a little more concerned than usual because things are looking a lot like the Austrian business cycle theory story right now. Uh, all you have to do is look at the markets. We had the large increase in the money supply. We didn't have inflation right away, which makes sense because people were spending a lot less money. Uh, you could say it a lot of different ways. Velocity fell, aggregate demand fell. We we're all staying inside, right? You, you know, maybe purchases on Amazon were continuing, but in general, people were going out less 
uh, spending less money. They're worried, are, am I going to have a paycheck in a few months? Everyone kind of held their money for a while. Now, all that new money that exists is getting put into projects right now. It's circulating through the system and inflation is starting to rise. And so we've seen the increase in the money supply. Now we're seeing input prices being bid up. Well, that's part of our story, right? And so the question is, how much higher do input prices have to go before some of these new businesses, these big loans that have been taken out, uh, how, how higher the input price is going to go before some businesses start to say, this project doesn't make sense anymore. It's time to fire the contractor that we had. And how long until that person, you know, that the contractor then, you know, goes out of business and they stop buying wood from their supplier. And then, you know, that wood supplier starts struggling. Uh, you know, when you, whenever you're predicting like timelines of systemic things, it, it's, it's always, uh, you know, a, it's like throwing darts to a dartboard, right? Um, so I, I, am taking the classic economist out, Austrian out, that I, I don't have any idea when it's going to happen or if it's going to happen. It is more concerning to me than usual, though. Uh, you know, we I don't think we ever hit this input price inflation uh, after the 2009, uh, you know, bailouts. No. Yeah. Uh, we, we never hit high inflation after, you know, in 2012, after all the printing of money. Uh, but this time we are. And that's uh, maybe a little concerning. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely a combination of Multiple things. So I agree 100% that the timing is uh, unknown. I mean, anybody uh, who tries to put something on that, I, I think is just uh, uh, not going, they might be correct, but it's kind of like uh, the what the magicians do, you pass out enough people and make enough predictions and one of them's going to be right. <laughs> and so somebody's going to look like a guru, but I think uh, some of what we've talked about with Hayek and the knowledge problem would say that that's the, the safer bet. Um, I, I wanted to talk about your systemic risk part that the, just to contrast the free market system, if so Greenspan was ad, advocating a gold standard, which we'll pretty much never get back to. I think our best bet is some sort of Bitcoin standard um, that, that might allow there to be monetary um, soundness. Uh, and the beauty of it is, is that the market system always has a combination of winners and losers, right? So people, uh, entrepreneurs are trying to build something and they're making decisions based on these interest rates on whether to take a new project on. And so as Peter was uh, doing in the first half, uh, if interest rates are 7%, then a certain amount of projects make sense. But if, if interest rates are 4%, a lot more makes sense. And so Greenspan's argument is that if the Federal Reserve is intentionally keeping interest rates low, we're bringing on a lot of projects that wouldn't otherwise make sense. And so they make sense in the short term because of what monetary policy was today, but ultimately that's gonna to come to roost. And that, that's kind of at the heart of the, of the business cycle. And um, one thing that came about from the financial crisis in the free market cure book, um, drawn a blank on the author's name, um, was we have during the 2008 financial crisis, we had too many houses and not enough factories. If you want to think about the business cycle and the, the mismatch of what was being funded this way, as it relates to the Austrian business cycle, is that because interest rates were low and because of maybe some other policies that uh, and cultural norms that evolve, that you got to have a house, got to have a house. And so consumers had this perception that the house was a safe investment and the best place to put their money um, we ultimately bought too many houses, too big of houses. So we might have normally bought a 2,500 square foot house, but everybody's saying buy a house, buy a big house, but you know, spend all your money on a house. And so you buy a 3,500 square foot house. 
Well, all of that meant that there's these houses being built that, as you know, can last 100 plus years, right, if you take care of them. So you have this long term investment in something that shouldn't have been done um, in terms of once the real activity catches up with price changes. And then we had the financial crisis where houses were actually going down in value in a big way. And um, I think the 2008 financial crisis really highlights the Austrian business cycle nicely. Yeah, I think uh, part of what you're what you're getting at is one of the areas where I think Austrians are the most right compared to every other school of thought. That usually in like if you ever take a macroeconomics course, when you learn about what's called capital, which is just like the things we use to produce the produced things that we use to produce other things. And so not goods that you enjoy, but goods that you use to create goods you enjoy or other goods that are used to create goods you enjoy. You know, anything that's not a consumer good basically is or land is a capital good. Um, And, you know, in most macro textbooks, capital is described as K, like units of capital. Uh, and it's actually the units uh, are sometimes put in dollar terms. Yeah, dollars. Uh, the problem is like you could put all things in dollar units, right? Like you could put land dollar units, but we don't. We put it in acre units. Uh, so what's the unit? Like what's the real unit for capital? And the, the answer is there's actually not one because unlike labor, which can be measured in hours, unlike land, which is like in acres, capital is heterogeneous. If we pour the foundation of a house and that foundation has value today, and then the foundation's value drops tomorrow. You can't just take the capital of the foundation of the house, turn it back into money that it was worth yesterday mm-hmm. and turn it into something else. It's yeah. expensive. Good point. When you have any sort of uh, long-term projects that don't pan out, you've effectively destroyed some of the capital that you had. You've destroyed some of that value. It can't come back. That's why you have a recession in the first place. That's why you don't just snap back to where you were before the boom. You have to have a recession because you destroyed a lot of the inputs that were being used in other places by turning them into capital in these things that no one actually really wanted. Had we not had government distortion, my belief was that we would have snapped back pretty fast from the COVID one. And the reason is for what you just highlighted is we just had labor sitting idle that we could actually put into place right away. Uh, once things got back to normal or once there's a vaccine or blah, blah, blah. Uh, Unfortunately, what went along with that is a lot of other government support to try to pull out the recession, which brings a contrasting business cycle theory is uh, what Keynes brought about, kind of known as the first person with macroeconomics um, in, in terms of using government to smooth out the recession or to bring us out of recession, for instance. Uh, to smooth out the business cycle in general. And so the idea Keynes brought to the table that politicians loved is that, hey, uh, the economy's down, let's just have the government spend some money and supplant what consumers aren't doing currently. And then the economy will stay propped up and then the government will back off on their spending when the consumers start spending their money. And that's the catch that I think public choice stuff helps us with is that the government never backed off on their spending. Yeah. And, and not even just public choice. Like, yeah, what's been revealed is that there's something very intellectually bankrupt at the center of like policy driven Keynesianism. And so like a really good example of that is, you know, one of the big stories is that the, the uh, unemployment rate fell for a while now that lockdown has ended, but now it's stagnated at a much higher level than it was before. Mm. There's a really easy explanation for why that is. It's because there are a lot of people, and we all know this story. We've heard it before, and it's true. There's help wanted signs all over the place. It's not yeah. for lack of jobs. There's a lot of people who are making more money on unemployment than they would be by working. It's not hard to figure out. 
And so here's a huge irony. One of the big problems in the Keynesian business cycle theory is, or you know, uh, I don't know if they would call it that, but you know, yeah. Keynesian economics in general is that prices are sticky. Keynesians say, oh, you can't give people wage decreases because people don't like that. And so instead, businesses just end up firing people. Uh, sticky wages is a huge problem. And so now as a response to this problem, we are making a totally sticky level of wages that someone's going to have whether or not they have a job. Like we've almost made stickiness of wages a feature of a system that firing people doesn't even get rid of. <laughs> right. And so it's like you could never adjust back. In other words, prices will never fall for, to full employment if you have a government mandated sticky wage. That's not possible. And so there's even like an internal contradiction here where even if you're a Keynesian, this unemployment policy doesn't make any sense. It, it actually contradicts your whole system. Uh, and yet, you know, it, I, I haven't heard any Keynesians uh, very loudly against this. There, there, might, there actually are a few good exceptions, but at least in the policy circles and the government circles, uh, somehow this is compatible with Keynesian thinking. Yeah. The initial impetus of the, of the cycle, according to the Keynesian theory too, is that there's animal spirits and that the investors are wild and speculative yeah. and uh, we need to taint, you know, they're, they're so wild that it's, it's only natural that there's going to be these huge ups and downs um, and that we can use government to help control those. Whereas the Austrians on the other hand is like, bring the animal spirits on, like competition, healthy competition will keep that in check and uh, we'll end up having better results down the road uh, even if we do have some ups and downs and later uh, even um, uh, economists uh, maybe led the way by Milton Friedman showed how monetary policy really contributed to the Great Depression a heck of a lot more than uh, any animal spirits and so this whole thing that's been going on since the Great Depression of use government as a tool to help uh, relieve ourselves of business cycle problems um, has been uh, pretty dumb. Yeah, the the, <laughs> the Keynesian, uh, and we're getting a, a little far from Austrian business cycle theory. I think that's okay, though. The Keynesian explanation for recessions and depressions is actually just a description. Uh, Keynesians say people get afraid and then they stop investing. And so either your explanation is basically just like recessions and depressions happen. That's one way you could say people are afraid. Is it just happens. It's random, you know, uh, or there's a reason why people are afraid, in which case you should tease out the reason. Uh, but it's sort of even a, from the very start, it's sort of nonsensical. It either tells us nothing, explains nothing real, or it doesn't explain enough. But either way, uh, the, this animal spirits idea is just kind of vacuous, really, when you drill down. I want to real briefly go back to one thing Peter said earlier about um, uh, capital, which I think is really important. And I think a lot of people look at our society and say things like, well, America's a rich society, we can afford to do X, but they don't understand um, what wealth is. And capital goods certainly are a type of wealth but capital, not only is it hard to measure, it's also not fungible. Um, you know, a certain piece of capital in a chain of production can't just be put somewhere else in the chain yeah. of production. And, you know, at the end of the day, if the economy fails, you can't eat the Large Hadron Collider. Right. Um, and our, a country is only wealthy when it has capital goods structured in a very certain way. 
such that the goods that are produced at the end of that structure are worth more than the inputs at the beginning of it. Yeah. And what a monetary policy that leads to system-wide busts does is screw up that structure. Yeah. And then you are left with capital goods that you can't even use. And um, so I think that's important. Yeah, no, you summarized that well. And I, cause I wanted to make sure as we, bring this podcast to a close that we kind of have the, the concluding thoughts. So the Austrians would say, keep government relatively small and limited and a monetary policy basically fixed or very stable. However, we want to, there'd be disagreements on what that looks like, but certainly gold standard has been kind of a, uh, an old argument that Austrians would have uh, prescribed, but there might be other ways, uh, Bitcoin in the more modern days that we can look to keep monetary policy very stable, fixed and predictable and government small. Yeah, I, I, I wanted to just expand on Justin's point just a little bit. I think a really good metaphor for this is like you can imagine wealth as like a completed puzzle. If you complete the puzzle, puzzle you get rich. Uh, but maybe every once in a while your puzzle gets a little misshapen and you have to put it back together. Uh, using the Federal Reserve to increase the supply of money is like is if a piece of your puzzle doesn't fit, it's like cutting a piece it, uh, of the puzzle in a way to make it fit in one spot. That maybe temporarily <laughs> you've solved your problem. Like you have a piece that's in there that like fits in the spot and, uh, you know, you can build off of it a little bit. But eventually later in the puzzle, you're going to be screwed up forever. <laughs> you're going to have permanently lower growth. And honestly, that's that's the, the result. It's when you mess with the capital structure you can band-aid over it, uh, you know, you can put a temporary seal on there, uh, but ultimately the chickens have to come to roost. Uh, ultimately, you know, you're gonna suffer the consequences and no, no amount of paper printing is gonna fix that. Yeah. All right, well, that looks like a good place to wrap. Uh, this has been a production of the Wharton Institute here at Ottawa University. I'd like to thank you all for listening. Uh, we do have a little donate button on our Wharton Institute uh, website. So if you want to support uh, this podcast and the other things that the Institute does for uh, students around the world, we, we sure appreciate it. So other than that, be fruitful and multiply. Thanks.